Amen. God, we thank you for this privilege, the opportunity that we have to spend these moments together. In this your house, we are honored to be able to spend this time gathered together in your name. But it's your presence, it's your presence, oh God, that makes the difference. And so we thank you for your obvious presence in this place. Father, we commit these moments to you. We thank you and we praise you for them in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you so much, worship team. Well, good morning. It is great to see you in God's house today. Listen, if you brought a friend, thank you for participating in Friend Day. If you're here as a friend, I'd like to uh, personally welcome you to Calvary. Thank you so much uh, for being here today. Can we, can we do this? Uh, can we just celebrate our friends real quickly? Can we do that? Come on, let's do that. Let's, let's thank our friends for being here this morning. I, um, I will tell you, as the pastor, I, I didn't want to have a day like Friend Day and not have a friend. Uh, and I was concerned, because I don't know if you know this, it's tough for me to connect with, um, with people that aren't a part of this church already because I spend a lot of time here. Uh, and so, um, but I'm, I'm so thankful for uh, people who were kind enough to say, you know what, Ed, I will come and be your friend. Uh, and uh, I wasn't sure if I would have any friends, and I have a number of friends here today, and so I want to acknowledge them. Scott Taylor, thank you so much for being here today. Um, um, Scott uh, is a, just a great friend of mine and a great friend of Calvary. Uh, Steve Steiger, where are you? So, Steve, thank you. Second row, thank you so much for being here with your family. For those of you that don't know Steve, um, Steve is the manager of Good Life 45, which we have a great relationship with. And so, uh, let me tell you, Good Life 45 family, I want you to know, Steve Steiger is in church. And uh, so, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, and then my neighbors are here. And I actually, I see them, uh, Dave and Liz. Man, I, honestly, it brings tears to my eyes to have you guys here this morning. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, hey, make sure that my neighbors are welcome. Amen. If you, if you are here for the first time or first time in a long time, you've picked a great Sunday to be at Calvary because we're starting a new series entitled The Great Debate. And, and here's what we know. If you go to just about any dinner table, or let's be honest, any bar in the Orlando area, you can get involved in a conversation about religion, right? And people love to argue politics and they love to argue religion. And sometimes they love to argue the politics of religion. Well, what I want to do is this, is I want to, for the next four weeks, I want to focus on some of those things that people love to, or maybe not even love to, but get caught up in arguing about. And, and here's what I have found, that so often what happens is in the midst of debate, there are these moments where you have those fact finders, right? You'll see it th th this week after the big presidential debate, after the presidential debate, they'll have a segment afterwards where they'll say, the candidate said this, reality is this. And there's a lot of things that are said about the items that are debated. But facts are our friends. Let me say that again. Facts are our friends. I want you to say that with me. Facts are our friends. Come on, you can do it. Facts are our friends. One more time. Facts are our friends. So this morning what I want to do is I want to share with you some facts. In fact, let me say this that today, because our subject is the Bible real, 
Today, in fact, the, the message uh, might not be so much inspirational. It might be a little geeky in the, in the amount of information that I'm going to give you. But I think it's important that you have this information. And here's the reason why. Because facts are our friends. In, in fact, l- l- let me start by saying this. There are, uh, I don't know how many books there are currently available. Here's what I do know. I know that the largest library in the U.S. and arguably the largest library in the world is the Library of Congress. The Library of Congress has 180 million volumes in it. If you were to put all those books on a bookshelf, it would stretch, interestingly enough, it would stretch from the front door of Calvary to the front door of the White House, 848 miles. There are 848 miles of books in the Library of Congress. Now, if that's not enough, there are 2.2 million new books published every year. Steve, I know that you guys are are working on one of those 2.2 million. I've I've been praying for that. So maybe with your book, it's it's 2.2 million and one. But there there are new books that are published all the time. What makes us think that out of 180 million books in the Library of Congress, 2.2 million new books that are produced every year, what makes us think that there's something special about this book? What, what makes this unique? In fact, even if you were to look at the religion books, the books on religion alone that are currently available, if you were to put them on a bookshelf, they would stretch from here to Daytona Beach. And yet, we have the audacity to claim that this book is somehow divine. Word of God says this. It says that all Scripture is divinely inspired and that it's profitable. All Scripture, that every word in this book, that it's divinely inspired and it's profitable. If if that's the case, then, there should be some evidentiary support for that. And and I think this question that's debated, that's argued, that's hypothesized, I think it's a very important question to be answered. And here's the reason why. Because the Bible makes some pretty massive claims. And if the Bible isn't what the church professes it to be, then those living outside of the church It's all good. But if this book is indeed divinely inspired, that means that what's inside it is pretty important. I'll tell you a few things that are inside of it. There are over 7,000 promises in this book that God made to you. And realize that he is not slow in keeping his promises. Now, some of those promises, he says this, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. I will provide for your every need. No weapon formed against you will prosper. It goes on and on and on. Promises of healing, promises of provision, promises of restoration, promises of reconciliation, promises of comfort, promises of wisdom, promises of power. They're all inside the book. And they only matter if indeed the book is what it claims to be, not simply another literary title on a bookshelf 848 miles long, but actually divine. So, if, if the Bible is indeed a divine book, 
here's what we know. We know this, that, that the Bible should be able to stand up to scrutiny. Now, one of the big areas that people will point out is they'll point out science. And they'll say, you know, if you, if you look at science, science is very clear that, that science stands in stark opposition to the Word of God. Can I tell you that's not true? In fact, the amount of scientific support that is in the Word of God is staggering. And I don't have time this morning to go into all of it. But I'm going to give you just, just a little bit of, a little bit, just a sample. There, there's so much more that I can give, but I'm going to give you just a little bit of sample. Now, over the years, there's been a, a lot of criticism levied against the Bible concerning its, its historical reliability. And these criticisms are usually based on the fact that there's a perceived lack of evidence from outside sources to confirm the biblical record. It's interesting that the Bible is held to a very different standard than every other book's when it's related to authenticity. In, in fact, there's a, a bias against the Bible in that people will say, well, the Bible can't be true because there's not another outside source that confirms what it says when all other historical writings are viewed from this standpoint. If there's not something that proves them wrong, then there must be some validity to them. But even besides that, okay, even though there's this standard that the Bible is held to, I think it meets it very well. Okay, so let me, let me give this to you. And uh, I, I wrote this in my notes. It says this, if the Bible is God's divine revelation, then it, it is essential that the statements found in the Bible when describing or mentioning the universe, physical laws, that they must agree completely with all known facts of science. Now, that, that's not crazy theories that are out there, but, but actual facts of science. In addition, they must do this regardless of the accepted theories and level of scientific knowledge of the age in which they were written. So, is the Bible divine? Well, let's look at the scientific evidence. Now, I'm going to start with the fact that the earth is round. We, we live on this great big ball. How many of you know that? Okay, good, most of you. A few of you are still thinking it's flat. We'll help you out. Um, let, me, let, me, let me share this with you. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 8, 27, he, he drew a circle in the face of the deep. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 40, 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Okay? So I want you to know this. Solomon wrote about the circle of the earth in 1033 B.C., Isaiah wrote, he sits above the circle of the earth in 745 B.C. So the Bible described the earth as being round or being spherical in 1033 B.C. and 745 B.C. Now let's look at science. There were a few Greeks, including Aristotle, who believed that the earth was, was spherical, but it was not until 1520 that the common held scientific belief that the earth was flat was disregarded. So in, uh, until 1520 AD, scientists would have said that the Bible is wrong when it says that the earth is a big ball and not one flat surface. What the word of God says has never changed. Science view on the composition of the earth has changed. How about this? 
that the earth hangs in space, that it's not supported by something. Job wrote this in Job 26.7. He wrote this in 2000 B.C. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Let me say that again. He hangs the earth on nothing. Until 1543 A.D., scientists believed this. The world's scholars and scientists, they believed in a system that the earth was rigidly supported and that all of the movement was happening in the heavens, not that the earth moved, but that the earth was stable, did not move, and everything around it moved. So in 2000 BC, Job describes the earth hanging in nothing and it being in orbit. And yet science didn't embrace that until the mid-1500s. That the universe is continuously spreading, that it's continuously expanding. In Genesis chapter 1, it says this, God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Jeremiah wrote this in Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord, if heaven can be measured, I will cast off all the seed of Israel for all that I have done, says the Lord. What's the analysis of that? Moses declares, and Jeremiah declares, that the world is constantly, that the universe is constantly expanding. What did science believe? Well, until 1800 A.D., all of mankind's theories treated the universe as finite and limited. How about this, the stars? Do you know how many stars there are in the sky? Well, in 150 B.C., Hipparchus taught that there were less than 3,000 stars. Ptolemy counted 1,056 stars and claimed that there was no way there could be more than 3,000. In 1608 AD, Galileo used a telescope for the first time. And, and it was then that he realized that stars are, in fact, innumerable. But that shouldn't surprise us because. In 588 B.C., Jeremiah wrote this, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured. Hebrews 11.12 said this in 63 A.D., As the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. The, the fact is this, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, both writers contend that the number of st stars were innumerable when all of science in that day and for centuries following said, mm, no, there's a limited number of stars. Friends, here's what you'll find. If you go through science over and over again, forget theories. Because as you're seeing, science has had all these theories through the years that change, that evolve. In fact, a new scientific discovery this week, what they're calling a major scientific discovery, has totally changed their view on the origin of man. It's, it's, a, it's a constantly moving target. And yet, the Word of God, friends, it always comes through. You can look at the issue of the recesses of the deep and what scientists believed about the depths of the ocean floor versus what we know in reality. The, the, the water vapor cycle, 
In, 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 Job 20, in Job 36, it says this, For he draws up drops of water which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. It describes this whole, the hydrological cycle of the earth which science didn't embrace until the mid-1800s. It's a scientific fact that this book stands the test of time. Again, I can give you detail after detail after detail as it relates to science. The fact that the universe is decaying, this is one of the major tenets of scientific fact. And this truth was not embraced by science until the mid-1800s. And yet, Isaiah wrote about it in 744 B.C. How is it that these men, without the aid of microscopes, without the aid of telescopes, how is it that they could know this information? How is it that it could be re recorded in the Word of God centuries upon centuries before the tools were available for the human mind to know this? Here's the reason why they could do it, friends, is because very God of very God inspired these men to write these words that you find in Scripture. It is the divinely inspired Word of God. There's not just scientific proof. Okay? There's also archaeological proof. Over and over again, there have been critics who have said, the Bible can't be true. One that stands out to me is, for many years, critics would say, the Bible isn't true because nowhere in Roman history does it speak of Pontius Pilate. And yet about 20 years ago, archaeologists unearthed this incredible architecture of a, a theater, a coliseum that was built in about 45 AD that on its cornerstone it says erected by the order of Pontius Pilate, governor of the region. It, it's at Caesarea by the sea. It's there. Uh, in fact, uh, in a little over a month, we've got a group of people who are going to be traveling from here to Israel to go to the Holy Land, and they'll see it. They'll see that cornerstone that has the name Pontius Pilate, to which the critics say never existed. That he was simply a figment of somebody's imagination that was written in the Bible when they made up the story of Jesus. Friends, Pontius Pilate existed, and he was there to approve the crucifixion of Jesus. Why? Because the Word of God is true. The Hittites were once thought to be a biblical legend until their capital and records were, dis were discovered in Turkey. It, it was once claimed that there was no Assyrian king named Sargon as recorded in Isaiah chapter 20 because his name was not known in any other record. Then Sargon's palace was discovered in Iraq. The very event mentioned in Isaiah 20, his capture of Ashdod, was recorded on the palace walls. And what's more, fragments of a stella memorializing the victory were found at Ashdod itself. Another king who was in doubt was Belshazzar, king of Babylon, who's mentioned in, in, in Daniel 5. The last king of Babylon was recorded to be, uh, I can't even pronounce his name, Nabonidus, Nabon Steve. 
and uh, we'll call him Steve, uh, according to history. And the tablets show that Belshazzar was Steve's son. Okay, his name isn't Steve, but you try to pronounce it. Historical evidence. Not just archaeological evidence, historical evidence. The historicity of Jesus. I'll get into this more next week when we'll talk about is Jesus who he claims to be. But know this, Josephus. See, it's not just the Bible, okay? Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, wrote of Jesus and wrote of the Christians. Other rabbinical writings, including Rabbi Eleazar and the writers of the Talmud, talk about Jesus and his miracles. Surprisingly to many atheists, they never denied the miracles took place. They never denied, the, 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 the early writers, the writers in the days of Jesus, they never denied the miracles took place. They just discounted why the miracles took place. They, they attributed it to, to some demonic power or something of that nature. Thallus, a Samaritan historian, wrote in 52 AD, attempting to give a natural explanation for the earthquake and darkness which occurred at the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, He wrote a letter to his son in 73 AD which tells of the deaths of Socrates, Pythagoras, and of Jesus. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? Nor did the wise king die for good. He He lived on in the teaching which he had given. Uh, Jesus is, is mentioned over and over and over again in the early writings. Listen, scholars have made statements such as, no serious scholar has ventured to postulate the non-history of Jesus. These independent accounts of ancient times, they're a direct response to the opponents that say that Jesus didn't exist or he wasn't who he claimed to be. How about prophetic proof? Throughout the Bible, there are all these prophetic statements, statements of things that will come to pass. There are, in the Bible, there are 332 prophecies about Jesus that he fulfilled. The mathematical probability would be 1 and 84 with 123 zeros behind it, that Jesus would fulfill all of the the prophecies written about him in this book. That's pretty massive. And yet he fulfilled every one of the prophecies. Here's a few. Um, That he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. That was written in in Zechariah 11. We see it fulfilled in Matthew Matthew 26, verses 14 through 15. Uh, that he would be wounded and bruised. That was written in Isaiah 53, 5. The fulfillment is Matthew 27, 12 through 14. That his hands and feet were pierced. That was written in Psalm 22, 16. We see it fulfilled in Luke 23, 33. That he would be crucified with thieves. That was written in Isaiah 53, 12. It was fulfilled in Mark 15, 27 through 28. The people were there to ridicule him. That was written in Psalm 22, 7. It was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 41 through 43. That his bones would not be broken was written in Psalm 34, 20. It was fulfilled in John 19, 33 through 36. That his side would be pierced. That was written in Zechariah 12, 10. It was fulfilled in John 19, 34 through 37. Only a divine mind could have conceived such a character through the centuries. And not just Jesus. One of the great cities in the time of Jesus was the city of Babylon. 
In Isaiah 13, written in about 700 B.C., Babylon is arguably the greatest city on the planet at that point. Massive. And here's what Isaiah writes. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldean's pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabians pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there, but wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls, ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels and jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. Now, how many of you have ever been to Babylon? I'll tell you why. Why none of you have ever been to Babylon. Because even though in 700 B.C. it was a great city, and even though in 600 B.C. it was still a great city, it was recorded, your mother shall be deeply ashamed, she who bore you shall, shall be ashamed. Behold, the least of the nations shall be a wilderness, a dry land and a desert, because the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited. So let's talk about Babylon today. The city became ruins, and it is perpetually uninhabited. The Arabs will not make their camp there. Wild beasts will live in the palaces and houses. Here's what happened. In 100 A.D., due to uh, several previous centuries' lack of rain, the, the Euphrates River, it became uh, very, uh, very salad. And this riverborne salt eventually destroyed the fertility of the land around the city, and the city dwindled in population. By 412 AD, the elaborate network of canals that fed Babylon to assure great pro pro productivity and were designed to control flooding, um, they had become filled in due to lack of maintenance, which caused the whole area to become swampy. In 460 A.D., uh, Theodoret writes this, that by this time there were no longer any Assyrians or Chaldeans living there, only a few Jews. By 1000 A.D., the river Euphrates changes its course. And now, today, what Babylon is, it is a ghost town. This great city, prophesied against, gone. It's not the only city that that happened to. Samaria. Let me tell you about Samaria. Samaria, what's interesting about Samaria is this. In 750 B.C., Micah prophesies this. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones in the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. Again, friends, this would be like prophesying that New York City will come to ruins and that Washington, D.C. will become a vineyard. Do you know what Samaria is today? This shouldn't surprise you. It's a vineyard. There's no longer a city there. It's gone. It's an agricultural area. It's a vineyard. How can someone know 750 years before a city would start to crumble that it's going to crumble and know specifically that it would become a vineyard? How can they know 1,200 years before a city is going to fall apart that not only would it fall apart, but it would not be inhabitable unless God divinely gave them that word to put down in his book?
This is the reason why, friend. It's the reason why it's important that we take this thing seriously. And if indeed this is the word of God, here's what we've got to understand. Here's what it tells us. It tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. It tells us that we have all sinned. You know what sin is? It's missing the mark. It's imperfection. And the reality is this. Nobody in this room, you, me, none of us are perfect. The Bible says this. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's plan for mankind. It wasn't God's plan that mankind live in a sinful world. Yet here we are. But God demonstrated his love for us, the word of God says, the Bible says, but God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross for us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now see, people who don't have a healthy understanding of this book, here's what they think. They think this, it's okay because when my time is done, and I stand before God, he's going to look at all the things that I did, and he's going to say, hey, you know what? You were, a, you were a pretty nice guy. You did a lot more good things than you did bad things, and because your good things outweigh your bad things, come on in. i got a place in heaven for you. But according to the word of God, that's not how it works. See, your eternal destiny is not based on whether you did more good things than bad things. Because it doesn't matter how many good things you do, you can't achieve perfection, and heaven is a perfect place. And that perfection has to be maintained. That sounds like bad news, except here's what the Word of God tells us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent his son into the world that through him we might be saved. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's why Paul could write in Ephesians chapter 2 that you're saved by grace through faith, believing in God, accepting the gift of Jesus Christ. See, if this book is true, then there is a heaven to gain, there is a hell to shun. And we have to realize that. We, we have to understand it. There's a reason why a book, some of it more than 3,000 years old, is still year after year after year the number one bestseller. And here's the reason why. Friends, this is not folklore and fables. It's not fantasy or science fiction. This is God's handbook for life for you. It's not complicated. Now, religion tries to make it complicated. Religious people try to make it complicated. Pastors try to make it complicated. It's not a complicated deal. 
In fact, God's plan for your life isn't complicated. That's the reason why the Word of God declares this. Don't be foolish, but know what God's will is. And here's what God's will is for you. Let me help you. Here's what God's will is. God's will is for you to walk in active relationship with Him. So how does that happen? Here's how that happens. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When Jesus was in the midst of his earthly ministry, there was this man, Nicodemus, that came to him by night. And and he wanted to know, he said, what do I have to do to secure my eternal destiny? And Jesus explained it to him. He said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, what? Be born again? That just sounds kind of creepy. Seriously, I have to re-enter my mother's womb? Ick. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being physically born again. I'm talking about spiritually being born again. That the soul of a man, your soul needs to be renewed. Well, how, how, does, how does that happen? And Jesus says, this is the reason that I've come. The reason I've come is to be the ultimate sacrifice. And in that, it provides an opportunity for you to have this ongoing relationship with the God who created you. See, God designed you to have a relationship with him. He didn't design you to do things. God's not this evil taskmaster. He's also not a big bloodshot eyeball in the sky, lightning bolt in the hand, waiting to zap you if you do something wrong. The word of God declares, and his interaction with us proves this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Well, if the Bible is real, and if God is real, why do so many bad things happen to good people? That's a great question. And it's a question that people have debated for forever. And the answer to that is found in the Word of God. And the reality that God did this, that God gave mankind, you and I, the ability to choose. See, you don't have to serve God. You can live life your own way. You can live life on your own terms. And because of the collective sin in our world, it it makes it a tough place. But here's what I have found. I have found this, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And all things, this isn't just me talking, this is word of God. Paul wrote this in, in the New Testament, in the book of Romans. All things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. I want to, uh, I want to introduce you to someone. We, uh, we live in a challenging world. And, and no, no, nowhere is that 
more evident than the stuff that's happened in the Middle East and Eastern Europe. And um, one of the challenging areas is the area of former Yugoslavia. And I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Jovica. And um, Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, their names synonymous with war and oppression. And, and for several hundred years, it's been an area of unrest and civil war. Um, in, in the last three decades, they just had massive issues with, with ethnic cleansing. And uh, it, it really has only been just recently that the former Yugoslavian nations that they're coming out of this dark time. And let me introduce you to Jovica. Go ahead and put his, his picture up on the screen if you could, please. This is Pastor Jovica and his wife, Sitka. I had the opportunity to preach in his church a few years ago. I love Sitka's the shirt she has on, faith is my religion. It's an amazing thing that she would have that shirt on. Because let me tell you Jovica's story. Jovica grew up in Croatia in a, in a small house. One room and a kitchen. Jovica shared one bed with his, with his parents and, and his sister. His grandmother lived in the kitchen. The children in his neighborhood, they made fun of Jovica because he was so poor. And so at, at age 13, Jovica started drinking. He, he started listening to, he, 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 got, he got captivated by American heavy metal music. Uh, he began uh, sniffing glue and sniffing paint, which is a, that's a common thing uh, over in Eastern Europe. They will, they will sniff the, the paint fumes to get high. Um, and, uh, and he started using drugs. And, and when, he would, when he would become desperate for money, for alcohol or, or drugs, he would go and he would ask his parents for money. And when they wouldn't give him the money, he would beat his, his, his parents. And when he, was, when he was 23, he came home and, uh, and, and just strung out on drugs and in a really bad way and told his parents, look, I need some money. And his parents said, I, we don't have any money to give you. And so he threatened to throw his parents out of the third floor window of their apartment building if, he didn't, if, if they didn't give him any money. And so frightened by the intensity of his own rage, here's what he did. He, he left home to protect his family. Jovica moved in with a friend of his that had the same affection for heavy metal music. His friend was also into Satanism, was dabbling in Satanism a little bit. But for some strange reason, the friend had a Bible. Didn't understand it, didn't embrace it, had picked it up somewhere, and it's sitting there in the room. Days go by, Weeks go by, months go by, that Bible is just sitting there. One afternoon, Jovica is lying on his bed. He's reading a comic book. And something compels him to pick up that Bible. It wasn't in his native language, but he, he worked through that and he remembers picking it up, and, and, and this is what he says. He says he remembers Jesus coming alive in front of his eyes. And, and when, when Jovica reads Jesus' prayer in Luke 23 where it says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. 
he felt convicted and he started to cry. He remembered how he hurt his family. In his acts of rage and a drug-induced drunken stupor. But he said this, he said, yeah, I may not know what I was doing, but there's no way, even if this God person exists, there's no way that he could forgive someone like me. Yobitsa tells a story that as soon as he thought that, that strangely, another scripture that he had read just a little while earlier just popped into his head. Scripture that says this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but the sinners. And in the apartment of a Satanist holding a Bible that's in a different language, Jovica said, God, if you can fix me, you can have me. I can relate to that. Because as a messed up teenager, that was pretty much my prayer as well. God, if you can fix me, you can have me. If you can fix me, you can have me. Jovica had a little bit of faith, and he had a little bit of faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jovica didn't know everything there was to know about God. He didn't have an exhaustive understanding about Jesus, but he saw enough in this book that it made sense for him to say, okay, God, I'm going to give you a chance. If you're here today and, man, you've come as a skeptic, I want you to know that I have barely scratched the surface. And I know that I've given you a lot of information, but even in all the information I've given you, I've barely scratched the surface on the proof that this is not just one of 848 miles of books, that there's something very unique and very different and very divine about this. I've also just scratched the surface on the story of God's plan for you. In fact, here would be my encouragement to you. Come back next Sunday. We'll pick up where we leave, where, where we leave off today. Because it's a, great, it's a great plan that God has for your life. But it starts, for you and for me, it starts the same place it started for Jovica. God, if you'll have me, you can have me. I don't don't know it all. 
In fact, there's much more I don't know than I do know, but I know enough to know this, that that I want to try it your way. In fact, here's what I'm confident of. I'm confident of this, that even as you sit here this morning, that there's kind of a tug at your heart. That's the Holy Spirit. That's part of who God is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit just kind of encouraging you, drawing you to say yes to Jesus. In fact, I want, to, I want to pray for you right now. God, I, I thank you for each person here. When they walked in, it's possible that we were strangers. But we've spent this time together. And now, on some level, we're friends. We've got this common connection, and that common connection is an understanding that the Bible is real, which means, God, that you're real, and the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, is real. And God, I thank you that across this room that you're knocking on the door of hearts. And you're telling them, not in judgment, not in condemnation, but in invitation. This is why I have you here today. Not this is why your friend invited you today. But you, oh God, speaking to them, saying, this is why I, very God of very God, brought you here today. For an invitation not to join a church, but to say yes to a journey And God, that's my prayer for each friend here, that they, even right now, right where they're sitting, that they would acknowledge the reality of who you are and say, God, if you'll have me, I'll go on this journey with you. I thank you, God, for the commitments that are being made all across this room. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.